Ed Hill grew up on a cotton farm in the San Joaquin Valley of California between Bakersfield and Fresno. He became the house piano player in the backing band at both the legendary Blackboard Cafe in Bakersfield and the Palomino Club in North Hollywood. In those clubs, he backed legendary artists like Merle Haggard, Chris Christopherson, Marty Robbins, and Willie Nelson before becoming part of the Grammy-nominated Mickey Gillies Urban Cowboy Band. He moved to Nashville and made the career switch to full-time songwriting and never looked back. He was BMI Songwriter of the Year in 2006 and has had 13 top 10 Billboard songs and four number ones. Probably for Ed, the most meaningful recognition has come from his peers, where the Nashville Songwriters Association has awarded him four times the Song I Wish I Had Written Award for It Matters to Me, Georgia Rain, Find Out Who Your Friends Are, and Just Fishing. Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke, and today I am thrilled to have Ed Hill from Nashville. Welcome, Ed, to our show. Well, thank you so much there, Doug. I'm just really glad to be here. Ed, I am blown away by your body of work. I've really enjoyed creating your Spotify songbook, which is out there for all of our listeners to listen to. But In listening to this and reviewing all your number ones and top 40 charting songs, you don't have to answer this question, but I am blown away why you are not in the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame. You belong in the hall as far as I'm concerned. And it is just a matter of time before you are inducted. So I feel honored that we get you before that happens. And I can't wait to come to the induction ceremony if and when it happens. Well, you know, Doug, I've been nominated twice for that, once in 2018 and once in 2019, last year. Yeah, I would love that. And I have a body of work that definitely qualifies. But the flip side of that coin is there's a lot of songwriters out here that belong in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And there are a lot of them are friends of mine. And when they have, have it every year, you know, there's, say, I don't know, how many are nominated, maybe seven or eight or nine. I don't even know who nominates them. And then they have the nominations for the songwriters that are actually artists. They get in. And you look who you're up against, a lot of people belong in there. And there's people in there that don't have as many singles or cuts that I have, but they have very important songs or they'll have a, a big song. So I can't knock any of it. And I don't even know who votes. I get to vote. Well, here it is, Ed. I'm here on Backstory Song to tell our listeners to start the campaign to get you in. We want to get the votes for Ed Hill to get in the Hall of Fame because he belongs there. Now, Ed, you've written a book, a memoir of sorts, but it really, I've read a lot of these memoirs from songwriters on my show. I found it to be a real instructional manual for songwriters in so many ways. There's so many incredible insights. It's called It Matters to Me, and you'll be able to find it on our site, Backstory Song, for purchase. But it's also on Amazon. But tell me about the book. Over the years, as a songwriter, every once in a while, because I uh, 
used to play in Bakersfield and I was used to play in the house band to Palomino in LA. And I used to be in the urban cowboy band and Mickey Gillies band during the urban cowboy. And then I came in to Nashville in the eighties and started getting songs cut. People have said, man, you need to write a book. And I've been, you know, so I had friends that said, man, you need to write a book. You really had an interesting life. As time went on and I had kids I thought, you know, there's things that they'll never know about me or my parents or my life if I don't write it down. And they might not read it for 20 years. But if I can just put it in a book, maybe people will be interested in it. And so there came a time when I just came across some people that had Peanut Montgomery, who is in the George Jones book. Peanut Montgomery is a friend of mine in Muscle Shoals. And Peanut wrote, I think it's 74 George Jones songs. And now there's a book, George Jones book. And then there's a book about Rick Hall. Even Stevens has a book who wrote all the Eddie Rabbit hits. And they're all the same publisher. And they said, man, you know, you can get your book published. And so I uh, just started going, well, I'm just going to write something honest, just something honest for me. And I'm not going to try to be a smart guy. And later on, I'll just put it kind of in order of when it happened. So I would just one day sit down and on my laptop and I wrote for about an hour and I wrote about a song like this is how this song happened. And then maybe the next day or two, I, I had an hour and I wrote about my mother. And so I wrote about different things in my life. And then after about two years, I just would kind of just put them in order. And then I had to edit it all. And then I had to get interviews or, you know, people critiquing it or whatever. Anyway, when I got it all done and all the nuts and bolts put in it and most of the commas and the paragraphs, right? I mean, there's still grammar mistakes, but the crux of it is pretty much there. And there's a lot of stories I left out. And then I had to edit certain things so I wouldn't get sued because some stories, you got to go be careful because if the person you're talking about, they're even dead and the, their family goes, reads it and goes, well, I don't like that, what you said about my dad. They can sue you. But I said that in the book. I says, I'm not going to tell you who this person is, but here's what happened. Or I'm going to change the name because it's a, you can get sued. I mean, it's just that simple. Now, if it's one-on-one, -on -one, like if something happened and it was just me and the other person, I can just tell the story because it's my word against their word. So I, I had to kind of figure out that a little bit. just. To make it happen. So anyway, I am. Um, and there's a lot of stories. I had great parents. Yeah, you did. I noticed that from the book. You grew up in Hannaford, California, in the San Joaquin Valley of Central California on a carton farm. And you really seem to have had a uniquely special relationship with both your dad and your mom. Yeah, there's wonderful people. My mom is actually from Tennessee, a little town called Springville. Now, there's Springfield, Tennessee, which is a bigger town, but Springville is a little place, kind of about, I don't know, maybe 50 miles from Paris, Tennessee. But my father was, he was born and raised in, uh, in Hanford, California, about a fourth generation farmer. They were just great parents. I just can't say enough about them, you know, and they had a lot to worry about because I was raised in California in the 60s. <laughs> they had a lot to worry about. My favorite story is the time you got arrested on top of the guy's Chinese restaurant building, just trying to look at the city, and your dad represented you in court. 
Well, you know, my dad, all the time when I was growing up, he either called me Buckaroo or Partner. And I have a Leanne Womack song I wrote with Mark Sanders. It was a single called Buckaroo, one of my favorite songs. And it was from my dad calling me that. But he also called me partner all the time. And I didn't know that this little piece of pasture he had put in my name and his name when I was just a little boy. He never told me about it because he just didn't want to die and have have it hung up. It was just like, it just, it'll just go to me. You know, I mean, he was thinking way ahead. And that story of the, the Chinese man who pressed charges when he went up there in the court, you know, my dad eventually asked him, you know, well, don't you have mushrooms in that restaurant? He goes, oh, yeah, we have mushrooms. He goes, yeah. He goes, well, where do you get the mushrooms? He goes, oh, I go pick them out in fields and stuff. You know, they grow wild. And, uh, well, haven't I seen you pick them out there somewhere uh, around uh, Ninth and uh, Ninth Avenue in Houston? He goes, oh, yeah, there's a cow pasture out there. I go out there and pick them because they grow on poop. He goes, well, you know, uh, who you're pressing charges against, he owns that property. And then it says no trespassing on it. And you're charging him for trespassing on your property. And that was it. End of the case, huh? End of the case. <laughs> this case is dismissed and the judge banged his gavel and it was over, huh? It was over, man. And my dad, he said, now I want you to thank the people. You know, I mean, I actually, my dad got a jury trial because he wanted people to hear it. So I thank every one of those people as they walked out. I didn't have to, but he, he told me to. My dad was the lawyer, was my lawyer. He just kept that all to himself all those years and all that time. And that's probably why he went ahead and did it, because he knew he had him. Yeah, that's just a great story. And he was full of those. I mean, when I saw him one time take a wasp nest in the middle of summer, I was working on something, tearing down this old building or something, old shed. And I was doing it with another guy. My dad was sitting in his truck. He was reading the newspaper in the middle of the afternoon. It was probably like in July. So it was hot. And we came across a wasp nest. And a wasp nest in July is not no fun, you know. I mean, it's like they're buzzing around. And we had kind of jumped back. And my dad just kind of put his paper down. And he got out of his truck real slow. And he walked over. And he just unhooked it. And unhooked the wasp nest. And it dropped to the ground. He went back and sat in his truck and opened up the paper. And he told me later, he said, I don't want to kill the wasp, you know, but if I drop it to the ground, they'll go and find make another nest. And when I look back on it over the years, my dad didn't have anything when he was a kid. I think when you look at kids that grew up and, you know, he was born in 1912. So when he was growing up, that was part of his entertainment. You know, I mean, he didn't have bicycles and toys and stuff. That's how country boys, you know, I mean, that was fun and interesting. He didn't like to kill anything. You know, he would pick up snakes, a lot of snakes, gopher snakes, garter snakes, you know. And my son does that same thing. You know, he, animals would come to him. That just reminded me of when he was a kid growing up on a farm. So you make your way to Bakersfield at kind of the height of the birth of the Bakersfield sound, arguably, or maybe after it has been established. And you're playing in this legendary club called the Blackboard. Yeah. Bakersfield was a circuit a West Coast circuit for those country stars. I mean, they would play Bakersfield, they would play Long Beach, a place called the Long Branch or whatever. Then they go up and down the coast, you know, those West Coast kind of players like that. And a lot of those people like Merle Haggard's family and Buck Owens, they came from the Midwest, like from Oklahoma. Actually, 
Buck was actually born in Texas, but they migrated to California to be farmhands, to work the orange groves, seasonal workers. They lived above Bakersfield, a town called Arvin, and another town called Lamont. And they were just where these poor people lived, and they would just have little makeshift little houses, and they would work seasonally, and they would go around and do that. So Haggard and Buck were the result of that. And playing music, it was a people thing. It wasn't like now. It was like you go to those little bars and clubs, which most of them are gone now, and that's where these people got relief. That's where at the end of the week, they would go on a Friday. They'd sit down and have a beer. They'd talk to their neighbors. They'd go out and on the dance floor. They'd have a dance floor, and they'd listen to music they could relate to. It was a way of getting rid of their stress because these people didn't have anything. And that music evolved from that. And they're real stories. You know, it's like, you know, Merle Haggard, you know, he just told the truth. You know, I mean, he talked about the streets of Bakersfield. He talked about the Kern River and the things in his life like that. These people didn't have anything. And their music, they didn't want to conform to Nashville. Nashville turned in at the time to having a bigger sound. The Nashville sound got to be where it was more orchestrated and more background vocals from the ladies, you know, like, which was beautiful, like, you know, Eddie Arnold and things like that, you know, make the world go away. And Bakersfield was going to be just telecasters and honky-tonk music. So you were the piano and keyboard player for Merle Haggard, Chris Christopherson, Marty Robbins, and Willie Nelson and Mickey Gillies' Urban Cowboy Band at the Blackboard and then the legendary club in Los Angeles, the Palomino. Uh, now, back in Chris Christopherson, that was uh, in Bakersfield, just when he came through a couple of times. I ended up living pretty close to where Merle Haggard's office was at the time before he moved to Lake Shasta. This was about 1976 when I was with Merle. And I was only with him a few weeks. But back in some of these other guys, a lot of it was at the Palomino in, in Los Angeles, like Marty Robbins and people like that would come in. A lot of times they would use the house band which is what I was in. So we were there every night back in whoever didn't have a band, but there was always big stars that came in the Palomino. And that was during the seventies. Bakersfield, I was lived there for seven years. I was raised on radio. I wasn't raised on country music, even though I'd hear a little bit on the radio, but I was just raised on whatever was on the radio. I mean, it was, you know, from the Beatles to the animals, to the stones, a little bit of Johnny Cash, no Hank Williams, none of that stuff. Even though I like it, I wasn't raised on it. I couldn't make any money playing rock and roll, and I would just be hauling this organ around and this keyboard and all this stuff around. And a friend of mine, about 1972, called me, who used to be a guitar player in a band I was in, and his aunt and uncle lived in Bakersfield. He said he had a job coming up play the blackboard and it would be a sit-down job, a six-night-a-week job and want to know if I was interested. And they actually paid a paycheck every week. I was like, yeah, I'm not that busy. I'll go try it. So that's when I started to learn the country. And we went to that club a few weeks after I got there. Bakersfield was only like 90 miles from where I was born and raised. So if I had to get in trouble or I, I was really dire straits, I could just drive back home. and go to bed there but i ended up sleeping at the drummer's house underneath my keyboards in a sleeping bag for a few weeks and i finally just got a little real cheap apartment i liked country music when i did that because it had a more of a formula whereas 
rock and roll. And I mean, when you're playing rock and roll back then, it's, it wasn't like the songs, they wouldn't be, have a formula, you know, they would, whereas in, in country, it would be like a verse chorus, maybe a bridge. It was easy to figure out, but I was really lucky because the guitar, first guitar player that I had in that band was a guy by the name of Jim Williams. And I got him in the book, but Jim was a nut about chords. He drove a little Maverick car that was worth as much as his guitar. He looked like a nerd. He hated club owners. Club owners hated him because he wasn't a real good looking, handsome guy. And he didn't care. All he wanted to do, he just wanted to play chords and he could play anything. He could play Glenn Campbell or Elton John or Bobby Blue Bland. And he knew all the country stuff, but he loved chords. And I would listen to him because I was infatuated, like how good he was and nobody appreciated him. And he liked me because I was a great student because I just wanted to learn. So that's how I learned a lot about writing songs and pedal tones and how to color your music with chords. I learned it from him. And that's when you started writing songs. Have any of the songs that you've written from that era been recorded? Yeah, but not on anybody you would know about. I'd get a few done here and there. And then what I started doing, I started buying a little bit of equipment to record my own songs. You know, but I wrote songs in high school in, in rock and roll bands. I mean... What was the first song you wrote? Uh, I wrote a song called Foggy Day. That was probably one of the first ones I ever wrote. I just remember the title. I don't remember how it goes, because I'm sure it was bad. But when I started learning songs to play in a band in high school to play after game dances and stuff, we would learn, you know, what the kids like. And I thought, well, why don't we just write one of our own? And so eventually we did that. And then we just did it a lot more. And by the time 1969 came around, we were writing a lot of songs. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Around my 
You remember where you were the first time you heard your song on the radio? I remember where I was. The first big song was a, a Reba song called "To Love Comes Again" in 1989. It was a big single, and I can remember in Nashville. I was coming up I-65 South. I was going north to Nashville, and it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And it came on the radio, and I was by myself. And I rolled down my window and I yelled at the car next to me, and they sped off. Because I was like, it's my song on the radio. And they had no idea who I was. But that thrill never goes away at any age. You know, when you're not the artist, I don't have the luxury of writing a song and putting it on my own record. I have to write a song that somebody else is going to do, which in a lot of ways is a lot more difficult. Because you don't know, first of all, they don't have the publishing and they don't have the writers on it. And they don't know what they're looking for. They don't want to do your song. They want to be a writer on it. The record label has got something to do with it. So you got to get past all these things. If you're an outside writer, you got to have a better song. The good thing about that is I want a better song. You know, I want a song that's going to last in history. I want one that's going to be good in 10 years from now and 20 years from now. You know, and that's the goal. It's a longevity thing. Ed, have you ever been in a karaoke bar where they played one of your songs? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Have you ever sung one of your songs in a karaoke bar? No, because I never go in a karaoke bar, but I've been a few times, a long time ago, but I've had people send them to me, like when I see a video of them in bars and in, and just in bands in general. I mean, because a lot of times a girl will get up and she'll sing like It Matters to Me by Faith Hill, or she'll sing Be My Baby Tonight, John Michael Montgomery, a guy I'll sing it. It's been done a lot, you know. It's real flattering, you know. The thing is about what I do or, or have done for for so long is I'd rather get one big song than a bunch of little ones. I'll take any of them. But like, say, on Faith Hill back then on Matters to Me, that was a huge song. And I'd rather have that song on that album than the other nine all put together because that's the one that's going to be remembered. You don't remember the other nine. I mean, you might remember one or two of them that were singles. I'm not saying the other writers weren't great writers. But I was fortunate enough to have that one surface. And the thing is, this song doesn't have any bridge. It's just a verse, chorus, verse, chorus, get out. And it's like, that's what great songs are. They're simple. There's not a lot of words. If you go look back in time, I'm into history when it comes to music. And I think young people should be into history of music. Listen to the songs from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. What do you like about some of them? They're not all great. Like you can pull from that. How bad do you want it? You know, this isn't work for me. I'm looking for ideas all the time. And, you know, my dad, when he got older, he would try to give me song ideas. He thought it was pretty cool. It's just a brain exercise. It's just an exercise. And at my age, I'm like, well, maybe I won't get Alzheimer's quite as quick if I just keep trying to think of songs. It's kind of a math project. The art of making something sound really simple. So, To Love Comes Again gets recorded by Reba McIntyre, and you wrote this with Bob Regan, and it's released in 89. One of your real long-term relationships, Karen Conrad, this is kind of like the birth of a real strong business partnership between you 
and Karen Conrad? Yeah, absolutely. She's still a great friend of mine. I, I don't talk to her very often, but I love her. I was really fortunate to come across her. And I came across her through uh, another writer that wrote for Karen Staley. She's had a lot of hits herself. She's a great songwriter. I was doing little demos when I first got to Nashville that I wrote by myself. I'd be writing at night. I'd work in the daytime, painting houses or whatever I had to do. Where can I go to put these songs down to get, you know, to get a guitar and drums and stuff, you know? And I finally came across this guy named Jackie Cook, who I could do a demo for. I mean, this is back in the 80s, you know? And so 200 bucks coming out of my own pocket for my song I wrote by myself. So I got a lot better a lot quicker over a year. Uh, I did 12 of them. I did one a month at Jackie's studio. And after a year, I took the eight, what I thought were the eight best ones. And I asked a girl, who, Karen Staley, who sang a few of them for me because I, I had a few girl songs. I asked her, who can I show these songs to? Because I don't know how this town works. All I see on every publishing window is it says no unsolicited material. I go, you know, what, what's a guy do? How do they find material? <laughs> they have to solicit it always? <laughs> My publisher is a good publisher. He's an independent publisher, but and that was Karen Conrad. So I went about 10 o'clock on the whatever morning it was. I walked in and Karen Conrad was at the front desk checking her mail. And I gave her my CD, or not a CD, it was a cassette. She goes, well, come on to the office, and I'll listen to him. Listen to him with you. And I was really thin-skinned because I hadn't been used to doing this. And I was like, oh, well, uh, I got to go do something. I made up some reason why I had to go because I just didn't want to sit in the room and have somebody critique my songs. So where I was staying, I went there, which is at a fiddle player's house. As soon as I got through the house, she called me, and she wanted four of those eight songs that I gave her. Wow. I went back or wherever. So what we did, we did single song agreements. I didn't get any publishing. I got all my writers, no publishing, four single song agreements. And she went back and paid for the demo costs. So she paid my $200. I paid a piece for those. And then we were off and running. I just had to show her the songs before I demoed them and she would pay for them. So we did that. And the 20th song that I got in her catalog was to love comes again, Reba McIntyre. It goes to number four on the charts. So, like your very first song breaks the top ten, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, and then uh, she got and, and it was with Bob Regan, and she had all the Bob's publishing too, and so she had a hundred percent of the publishing. But as that song, you know, made its course up and down the charts, as time went by, I remember the first time I got any money at all for writing a song was. From her, I got a check for $50,000, and I'd never gotten any money right this song. And I called my dad, <laughs> and he goes, well, maybe you ought to keep doing that. <laughs> so I had confirmation <laughs> from him. You know, I've lost my parents in the, in the 90s. They both got to see me get number one records, which was very rewarding for me. So this song has like a fiddle intro, and a I would maybe call it a barroom-style piano, which when I hear that in your songs and I'm listening to the Ed Hill songbook on backstory song, I hear that sort of barroom piano style. Did you contribute that to the song? Is that like one of your signature things? Sometimes, you know, when you spend a lot of time in honky tonks, like I did in Bakersfield or whatever, you get a real feel for what people like. And 
record label people should have hired me to be a consultant, you know, because they make choices of, well, what's going to work on the radio? There's so much payola and crooked crap going on. The bottom line is, if you have a song that people really love, it'll break through if they can just hear it. They just need to hear it. I could see that night after night, you know, they come in and I play those places, man, and I'm in a band, you know, you're, I'm watching them like they're watching me and it's, you know what they want. They let you know. So I had that ingrained in me, but I would see other piano players and honky tonk piano players and, and whatever. I mean, and I had played bass in rock and roll bands before I played keyboards and our keyboard player, his mother made him quit when I was in a high school band. So I had to play the organ with just on the next gig. I didn't even get a chance to, to practice or anything. So, but back to Jim Williams in Bakersfield, he showed me really how to be a bass player because the left hand of the piano goes with the bass player, which goes with the kick drum of the drummer. That all works together. And so he would know how to color music where you would dot the one before you go to the four chord. You dot the one before you, I say dot it, you hit the, you hit the, the root before you go to, the, to your next chord. And a lot of people don't know that. And he would teach me things like that. It just became part of my songwriting thing of how do you move people? Like you can move people's emotions by getting from one chord to the next with the passing. It's not like, you know, bro country where everything is one, five, six, minor, four. I mean, it's like gentle on my mind, John Hartford doing, you know, where they're beautiful chords, you know, and this guy, Jim Williams, he loved rhythm and blues and he loved pop songs. And, you know, like I love all music. It's either good or it's not good. It's either really good or it's okay. You know, I don't care what genre it's in. I go by my heart. I don't, I'm not like a record label. The record label, they do market analysis. My market analysis is what does it do to my heart? And that's what everybody in the world out there, that's what they're going by. So they're missing the boat a lot. You know, publishers, they want to set you up with somebody so they can get a favor done for themselves. They want you to write with somebody in another company where they can get these favors they don't know who's good and who isn't good because they're not in the room when the songs are being written. They don't know who's really, really gifted. Some things you can't teach. Some things you can. You know, you, just because you come out of Belmont doesn't mean you can write a song. That just means that you went to a math class and you know that a bridge isn't the same as a chorus, you know, a verse. You know what I mean? So the people that are really, that do this sometimes just do it without money. So one of the characters in your life who co-wrote your first number one hit, Be My Baby Tonight, was Richard Rich. Actually, Bailey. actually, and, uh, Running Behind was the first number one. It just all depends on which chart you're on. When you look at certain charts, they're not number one. But, but I've gotten awards for songs that are number one that weren't on certain charts, you know. Yeah, I'm always running, but I'm always 
always running behind All my life spent this way One dollar short and one day late One rung lower on the ladder I'm trying to climb If I ever get lucky, if I ever get rich Gonna hold my life So let's talk about running behind. Run Behind was with Mark D. Sanders. That was his first number one. Now, it might not have been number one on whatever chart you're looking at. I got a number one plaque for it, and they had a number one party, and it's BMI number one. And so- Well, that counts as a number one in my book. Well. Do you remember the number one party? Oh, sure. I remember them all. Yeah. I mean, it's just, they're, they're just really nice, and you get to talk a little bit. BMI will, you know, they'll give you a plaque, and they'll give you a cup, a silver cup. Unlike Be My Baby Tonight, after a few years, I went back in and they gave me a certificate because when it went like 7 million airplays, it's a standard now. When you get so many airplays, at least it used to be, it matters to me or my be, be my baby tonight. They've gotten so many airplays that they become a standard, what they call a standard. And I don't know if that changes the way you get paid. Uh, it's probably not to my advantage, but they've been played so many times. Anyway, but Running Behind was just a fun song that Mark and I wrote one day. and. I had that title written down. We had that one pretty quick. Didn't uh, think that much about it. My dad used to say a day late and a dollar short. But you know, I like what you did there. You flipped it around to make it rhyme. We had to rhyme with something. That's why. One dollar short, one day late. But that went the rhyme, you know. We cheated a little bit, but yeah, right. But you notice how simple that song is. There's hardly anything to it, you know. And that's what people remember. If you look back, in the history of almost any music, I mean, if you look at Love Me Tender, Elvis Presley, if you saw that lyrics written on a piece of paper, you'd be like, well, there's nothing there. Love me tender, love me true, never let me go. Well, my darling, I love you, and I always will. I mean, you know, and it's an iconic treasure, you know, I mean, because people don't have to think. People don't want to think, you know. Sometimes writers, if you're going to write something real complicated, well, just go on some island and go ahead and do it. But if you're trying to connect with other people, I mean, Wild Thing is connected with more people than anything, you know? <laughs> it might be the most covered song. In your book on Running Behind, you, you wrote this phrase that really caught my attention. The hook seemed right when we placed it at the end of each verse. That's like an intuition for you, I think. Well, I was told back then, actually Karen, my publisher, she's always trying to help and she had a real good knack for stuff. But when you listen to other stuff, like there's publishers today or there's a good friend of mine who runs record label if the hook isn't at the beginning and the end of the chorus it's a real hard time to get him interested that's just his mindset i'm like listen to the song but what it was back then it was the same thing most of the songs that were singles on the radio the hook was at the beginning of the chorus and it was at the end of the chorus and it's like they're telling you well when you're writing make sure your hook's at the beginning of the chorus and at the end of the chorus well my first number one there, which is running behind, the hook was at the end of each verse and not, there wasn't a chorus, there was just a bridge. So that shut them up. Then they go, well, you need a bridge. And I go, no, you don't need a bridge. It matters to me doesn't have a bridge. Be My Baby Tonight doesn't have a bridge. A lot of my songs don't have a bridge. The bridge needs to, is an important thing. It needs to say something. If it's not called for, if you don't miss it, it shouldn't be there. You know, sometimes there's a reason for it. You got to go by your gut instincts. But years ago, I read uh, Napoleon Hill's book, The Law of Success. 
And uh, it's just the law of success. There's like 15 laws of success. It's a real common book. Everybody should read it. It really helps when you study what you're doing, making it where people can, they don't have to think, you know? I mean, it's like they want to relate to it. They don't want to think. I mean, a lot of those things in that book, I apply to songwriting. You know, it's the law of attraction. That's one of them, you know? Why do you like it? I know you've heard that worn out line about love at first sight. I never knew those words were true till you walked in tonight. All it took was just one look to knock me off of my feet. Oh, I'm not a man of many words, so I'll make this short and sweet. Could you, would you, ain't you gonna If I ask you, would you wanna be my baby tonight? Take a chance, slow dance, make a little romance Honey, it'll be alright Girl, you got me wishing we were hugging and a-kissing And a-holding each other time So could you, would you, ain't you gonna If I ask you, would you wanna be my baby tonight? So let's talk about Be My Baby Tonight, which is probably one of the most hook-filled songs you've written. Certainly that lyric, you know, is a grabber. And you wrote it with Rich Fagan. I read his bio and, you know, he seemed like he was quite a character and a half. Yeah. Rich was a real interesting guy. We used to, before I knew Rich, really... We did a lot of our demos at a, a recording studio called County Q, and they're, they're still open. But, I mean, every month we'd go in there and do demos, and Rich would do his. And uh, so, anyway, the guy who ran the studio, who's owned it, Paul Sculpton, I asked him one day, I said, man, you know, Paul, you know anybody that I may be able to hook up with? Like, I like to try out writing with somebody else, maybe four or five people every year that I haven't written with to see if we gel. And usually if I do that, maybe one of them will work out. You know, if we don't see eye to eye, well, we'll just be friends. You know, I mean, it's no big deal. But see if you can find a new writing partner that you might work well with. And you might not. You might write one. You might write ten. You might whatever. So anyway, he goes, you know, I bet you and Rich would work well together. He knew both of our writing and because uh, Rich would come in there and do do songs. And I thought, you know, I'll give it a shot. And uh, so we got together and. We wrote a few songs, and this is probably, I'm going to take a guess and say maybe our third or fourth song. And he had a little apartment, and uh, he smoked pot and drank wine, and he was a hippie, and he had tattoos, and he had knives, and he had beads. And a really nice guy, though, a talented guy. And Rich used to live in, I think, Philadelphia, and he was homeless. And I thought that was, and, and Rich, is a, he's older than me. I don't know how much older, five years, ten years, I don't know. He didn't look it. I went to ride with him one day, and he always rode on an ovation guitar. And, and I had this cheap piece of crap K guitar that I bought for 50 bucks. That day, that's just what I brought over there. So I didn't have anything better. And he goes, well, I've had this idea 
that I can't get anybody to write it with me. And I've turned three or four songwriters onto it and they all turned it down. And they said, it's just something that I had when I was homeless in Philadelphia, singing around the fire trash barrel, trying to stay warm with three or four other guys. And Rich is a small man, you know? So, I mean, he's singing with big guys protecting and stuff. And it was a doo-wop thing. And it was just, you know, it was just, you know, could you, would you, ain't you going to, if I ask you, would you want it? That's what he had. But he went with something else. Like, could you, would you, ain't you going to, if I ask you, would you want it? Baby, don't you, baby, debba, 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 something. You know, it was just, that's the doo-wop. I honestly thought it was stupid and I had nothing better. I was like, okay, well, what the key is, is when you're riding with somebody, you really try to find what they're good at. And there might be different things, but Rich was good at phrasing. He could phrase something and he was, he really had a knack for it. And so, I went for it, and I did come up with the second half of that, was take a chance, slow dance, make a little romance, honey, it'll be all right, which wasn't near as good as what he had. Could you, would you, ain't you going to, if I asked you, would you want it? My only question was, before that, Les Taylor, who was in exile, he had a song, Shoulda, Coulda, Woulda, that came out on the radio about a year before, and I was like, eh, that's pretty close. But whatever. So we wrote this three chord song with no bridge. We demoed it at County Q and got demo singer named Ron Wallace to sing it for us. It probably sat in their catalog for a year, maybe longer than that, maybe a year and a half. Then I had already graduated where I was getting a quarter of my publishing because I was starting to get a little bit of success. And so I asked her, I said, can we, I, it was just a handshake. We didn't have no contract. I never had a contract with her for seven years. It was a handshake. But she said, okay, I'll give you a quarter of your publishing because I was starting to get interest from other people. Scott Hendricks, who was producing John Michael Montgomery at the time, and a friend of Karen and, and Ron Stevie, who worked there, he used to come in once in a while to listen to songs. He never took a song. Never took a song. Nice guy. Everybody would go to the lake and go skiing and stuff. And we're all friends. And now he's running Warner Brothers, and he produces Blake Shelton. Anyway, back then... He'd never taken a song, and uh, somehow they played him Beat My Baby Tonight. He took a copy for John Michael Montgomery. I don't know if he ever put it on hold, but he took a copy. I remember later him saying it was hard to get to, uh, John Michael Montgomery to hook it, you know, singing it. Anyway, but he did, and it became the second single off his second album after I Swear, which I swear by the moon and the which is a beautiful song. They're still playing that song. They're still playing my song. I mean, it's amazing. The simplicity, you know, and I've even done another recording of it slow. I've done an R&B version of it, and I've heard a lot of different versions of it. So in your book, you say, it says there's no burn factor, which I thought was interesting, that, that it's still played on the radio because there's no burn factor. And you said, it's not stupid, it's fun. And I wanted to ask you, what's the difference between stupid and fun in a song? Well, you know, that's up to each individual to say, I don't know, they might be the same thing. I don't know, but kids really love Be My Baby Tonight because it, it was something to learn. It was a tongue twister that people like to learn, you know. The way those words went together, it was crafted very well. And that was him. But when you think about four guys singing it on the street corner for probably two years, they perfected it. Now, stupid, I mean, I love Wooly Bully. I will listen to Wooly Bully if it comes on the radio. 
that that crosses from stupid into fun if you ask me that like that becomes fun even though it's stupid like <laughs> but it's still a great song and i will still listen to it i love it you know maddie told hattie about a thing she saw had two big horns and a woolly jaw i mean come on having fun is part of the deal people listen to music because they want to get away from the drudgery of their life and it's like but then on the other hand sad songs i like sad songs i like the other side too you know because they're talking about things that relate to you because that's the deal when you know country gets away from real songs that side of it's great too like george jones stop loving her today that wasn't supposed to ever be successful because it's about a guy that died and it's the biggest country song that there ever was yeah bobby braddock talked about that on our show Let's talk about one of the sad songs. The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Reba McIntyre. It's your sort of second Reba charting song. Yeah, that song uh, was the fastest rising number one Reba ever had. It was number one in eight weeks after it came out. There was a book called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter and a movie. Did you read the book? I wanted to know that. No. I just go to bookstores and if I and I look through stuff and I walk down there and if I see something that caught my eye or I don't even think that I brought it up. I think Kim Williams brought it up. It's been a while. We wrote that, and Reba had already recorded her album, whatever album that was on. And they were all done. Somehow there was one song in there. Apparently she didn't she didn't like it that well or something. And so she heard our song, and it became the last song on there, and it, it became the big song. But it's the last song they recorded. Same way with Running Behind on Tracy Lawrence. They were all done with the album, and they took a song off and put our song on at the very end. But The Hardest Lonely Hunter was the producer now, Dan Huff. He had just come to town. He's a great guitar player, and he's the guitar player on The Hardest Lonely Hunter, and it really, really helped sell it. I kind of felt like it got a different style of piano from you. I kind of wrote in my notes like a Bruce Hornsby style. I don't know. If- Maybe it's an Ed Hill style. Bruce copied you. Uh, I don't know about that. You know, 
Do you remember writing the piano line on this? I don't think I think I was playing guitar that day. Oh, you were? <laughs> I didn't play piano. That was all in the studio. It was a lot easier to bring a guitar than a portable piano because it's just easier to haul around. And I would write a lot on that. So it all depends where I was and what was available. I, you write different songs, you know. I have a lot of girl songs, singles, and, and just in general, girl songs that got cut because it was, you know, I, I, I guess I had an epiphany one time. I was like, look, this is, this is hard getting, getting guy songs cut. I'm going to write girl songs and see if I can get them cut because, first of all, there's more liberty to say things. Girls will say more things than the guys would. The guys are just partying on the truck and drinking beer. But the women actually were, were talking about, you know, heartbreak and talking about more things. Like if you take, for example, it matters to me, whatever you say and how far, whatever you say and how far are Martina McBride singles. Those three songs, how far, whatever you say, it matters to me, are all the same concept. It's a woman talking to a man about, I'm going to leave if we don't figure this out. Like it, right now, it depends on whatever you say, whether I stay or whether I go. Same thing with how far do I got to go? Do I have to just leave or can we figure this out? Same thing with it matters to me. When we don't talk, when we don't touch, it matters to me. I don't know if I can do this. So I didn't know it at the time, but those are all three the same concept. But it gives a woman something to talk about. I would like when Sarah Evans came to town, I started using her to sing demos. She got mad at me because one of her demos, the same record label, they give it to Martina. Like Sarah Evans sang whatever you say in the studio as a demo. And then when she took it over to play it for RCA, they all gave it to, to Martina. And then she got mad at me. I had nothing to do with it, but I'm really glad Martina did it, you know? So you never know, you know, uh, how that's going to work. but Well, I find it interesting that you were so capable of writing songs from a female perspective. And, and I think a lot of your songwriting is not so much autobiographical, it seems to me, from having read your book. Uh, did you draw on your personal life or, or how did you put yourself in someone else's shoes? You know, I don't know other than the fact that feelings really get to me. If I look back, I've been told my bread and butter our emotional songs, you know, big ballads or whatever. The thing is, you know, they're always looking for, give me up-tempo positive, up-tempo positive. But the songs that last through time, a lot of times aren't that. They're a great big song, you know. It's just getting them cut is hard. I don't have the answer to, to any of that. It's just lucky and a lot of miracles, you know. I'm still doing it. I just don't do it at the pace a publisher wants or whatever. I'm trying to do something I really like, but. Uh, it's such a rigged system. Last year, I had a, a song I wrote with Billy Lawson called My Friend Fred, and it's about drug addiction. Sammy Kershaw begged us to do it, and he didn't have a record deal. And so we're like, yeah, go ahead. And he did it. It was an independent thing. It got to 39 on the charts, and the video to number one on uh, Taste of Country for seven weeks in a row, and all of a sudden, it was gone. The whole song was gone, not to be heard. Because when they when they find out something's doing good and it's not a major label, it's, it's all the payola or all the stuff intertwined with iHeart. And, you know, this is all run by so few people, they nix it. And so 
not a fun business to be in when you look at on the inside, unless you've got something where you're on the inside. I mean, luckily I got, uh, most people are good cut by Luke Bryan, who's never done a song like that. And I'm surprised he did it, but I think his mother talked him into it. But that song shot to number one because it was a real song. It wasn't just crap about, you know, getting with a chick, you know, I mean, it was like, it was before everybody else was writing them too. It's just getting over the hump. A record label and an artist has to feel like your song is going to propel their career. It's going to make them elevated into another, you know, whereas when they write the songs themselves, I'm not going to get an album cut anymore. You know, album cuts used to make money. They don't make any money anymore, you know, but I'm not going to get one because the artist is going to have their name on everything. The only time I'm going to get a cut is if they think it's going to be a career record. So that's quite a challenge if you think about it, you know, and, but that's the way it's kind of always been to some degree. Like I'm not here to write a piece of shit. You know, I'm just not. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Anytime, you know, well, you know, the people that I idolize songwriters, that came before me are, are in my class of, you know, the years or whatever, they're that way too. You know, I mean, I have all the respect in the world for these people that are in the National Songwriters Hall of Fame, you know, and uh, maybe I'll get in there before I die. I don't know, but it's not my call. We're going to get you in there. Ed, Ed you, you know, you touch on this in your book, you quoted Mark Twain, the difference between the almost right word and the right word is really a larger matter. Tis the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. I, I ask songwriters this question all the time. How do you know when you're done with the song, when it, when it has that feeling? Every song's different and there's not, a, there's not a hard and fast rule. Here's what you, what you think about that really help you out when you're writing a song. It'll never be worse than where you are. Like, say you think you're done. Okay, it'll never be worse than that. So only only to get better. So you just, you know, I don't know who you think you are, but why don't you just look at it some more? Can you make it better anywhere? One word, anything, a melody, anything. Can you eliminate something? Bob McDill, who wrote great songs, you know, and he's got all the awards. He said, you got to take out all the bondo. You got to take out everything that holds it, you know, take it all out. You want simplicity? You want none of that. Every word counts. And it's like, so when you're looking at it, man, can you make it better? Sometimes it's best to sleep on it. Maybe you have to sleep on it for two weeks. Maybe you don't. One of the songs I'm most proud of is How About Them Cowgirls by George Strait. Walked in at 10 o'clock in the morning. By 12 o'clock, the song was on hold for George Strait. It was done, and they already had it in his camp. I've never had that happen before. And it's one of the most complicated, best written songs I've ever done. That's just persistence and determination, which goes back to uh, Napoleon Hill's laws of success, persistence and determination. And that's what a farmer is. I felt the rush of the Rio Grande into Yellowstone And I've seen firsthand Niagara Falls And the lights of Vegas Crisscrossed down to Key Biscayne And shot town via Bangor, Maine 
think I've seen it all And all I can say is How about them cowgirls Boys ain't they something Sure are some proud girls And you can't tell them nothing And I tell you On that song, How About Them Cowgirls, you wrote in your book that it's the first time that you rhymed girls four times. But I actually think this is one of the best rhymes of your career, the way you do this. I did rhyme the other parts of the chorus and stuff like that, but it just says it a lot. It's just, how about them cowgirls? Sure are some proud girls. You rhyme girls a lot, but... It just seemed right. I tell you right now, girls, may just be seven wonders at this big old round world. Now there's the rhyme. How about them cowgirls? But I got cowgirls everywhere. And I wrote that with Casey Bethard and Casey's real good and all that stuff. But, you know, I can remember like in the bridge, uh, she don't need you and she don't need me. Well, we added she don't need me after a while because it's like, wait a minute, I don't want George... I want him to be humble too. You know, I want him to be down there like, she don't need me. You know, you got to make the singer want to sing it. The singer has to be in a certain light. And that light there is like, she don't need you and she don't need me. And that makes a girl feel good. And that's one of George's favorite songs to do live. He does every show to this day. Yeah, yeah. Often I think closing the shows with it, right? I was listening to it last night again, and I was like, that bridge is one of the best bridges I've ever heard. Because not only does it say that, it says, she can do just fine on her own two feet, but she wants a man who wants her to be herself. I mean, that's a cowgirl, man. And like, you just captured it. Well, you know, the uh, second verse was different. The second verse is, um, she's riding colts and Stingboat Springs. Originally, that was she's bucking Bronx in Steamboat Springs. And when George got it, him and his wife, Norma, got a hold of, I think, Tony Brown, the producer, who got a hold of us. And they want, you know, and George is like, she goes, Well, George wants, says, Norma wants to know if you can change that to riding Colts in Steamboat Springs because she don't buck Bronx. <laughs> like, you know, in, in her real life, George's wife, what was crazy about it, it's a better rhyme. She's riding colts and steamboat springs. So you got the colts and the bolt. They all rhyme. You know, they come out of your mouth real nice. Whereas Buck and Bronx has got those. Little internal rhyme, huh? Hard, yeah. So that was a better thing. And then I used steamboat springs because my friend Mark Sanders, who I wrote a lot of those other songs with, he had bought a place in steamboat springs. And I love the name. I also, when I got songwriter of the year, they went to steamboat springs to ski. And we all went and stuff. So I had it in my head. Mark was always wishing he was a writer on it later on because I had Steamboat Springs in it. But I go, but Mark wrote, I hope you dance. And I go, well, I wish I was on that one, Mark. Now, this song has strings on it. And not all of your songs have strings on it. And very few do, in fact. George isn't afraid to put strings on it. I had Tony Brown, 
when uh, they had that song done and he, he let me and Casey come in and listen to it before it came out. He's like, the strings, he says, I, this is George's rhinestone cowboy. And there's a lick in there that is the actual rhinestone cowboy string part. Na, 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 like a rhin- and if you listen to the song in the middle of it, it does a rhinestone cowboy string lick. And because George, in some of his songs, he's not afraid to put strings. You know, that's, you know, I mean, he's, it, it just, that's just him. And so this song here, there's been like four or five different videos done on this song, cowgirls, and, and they're all good. You know, they're just, some of them are just stills of cowgirls and horses, but I'm so proud of this song. And it's like, I've had people call me up that are uh, musicians. And like, I had one guy in, uh, in Ohio or something and a friend of mine I knew, and he said, man, we learned this song. He says, I had no idea. It was just hard to learn. He says, man, you guys wrote that. I don't know how you did it. Cause I can't even figure out how to play it. You know? And I was like, well, and I've had the same thing happen on there. You are the Martina song that was in a movie. I've had a keyboard player goes, man, that sounded really easy until I tried to figure out how to play it. It's in two separate keys, like the verses in one key, then you got to transpose to another key. But if you do it right, it bounces between G and D, but it's very subtle. Is it, is it why? I don't know what key she's doing it in. Yeah, it'll be where the root will be the one, and then all of a sudden the root is the five chord. I don't have it on, on the tip of my fingers right now, but if you listen to it and you try to play it, it'll twist your head around a little bit, but it sounds so natural when you listen to it. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like this overlap. Yeah, that was in the movie Where the Heart Is with Natalie Portman, Sally Field, and Ashley Judd. In the wedding scene, and I think this has, in some respects, been a wedding classic song. This song has been played at a lot of weddings because it's such a beautiful love song. Do you think this is the most beautiful song you've written? Well, I don't know. Uh, I got so many songs that have never been heard. I have a song called I Want to Marry You that's actually uh, only about a year old that's just absolutely gorgeous. I wrote it with Billy Lawson and Muscle Shoals. It may get recorded here pretty soon by by a pop artist i don't know but but you know i mean i got songs like it'd be great to hear somebody like adele a crossover pop artist like that oh man uh lady gaga or adele i mean those women they sing so good and then there's songs like i got a song that's a man that jack ingram made a single out of jack ingram from texas and i wrote that with mark and uh Dale jones in Steamboat, but That's a Man is written by my dad, the last verse. And it would be a great song for Bruce Springsteen. And so would Drinking Class, Lee Bryce single. That'd be great for Springsteen. Well, he just got in a little trouble with drinking. I don't think he's going to do that anytime uh, soon. Uh, that'll make him do it, probably. <laughs> Maybe. I that was Seems like he was set up there. He had a .2 rating. Oh. to crows Clock in when the whistle blows Eight hours ticking slow And then tomorrow we'll do it all over again I'm a member 
of a blue collar crowd. They can never, no, they can't keep us down. If you gotta, gotta label me, label me proud. I belong to the drinking class. Monday through Friday, man, we bust our backs. Lift you Yeah, let's talk about Drinking Class, because that is a different song for you. You know, it's got the fake rhyme of Monday through Friday, man, we bust our, you just feel the word ass coming, and instead you give them the backs. And you guys did that by design, I imagine. Did you talk about that? Oh, yeah. We talk about it. Oh, yeah, for sure. No doubt about it. Because we knew people were, well, first of all, you don't even know if anybody's going to ever do it when you're writing but you're like, no, let's do back because you're really busting. In the jobs I've had, when I really work, my back would hurt at the end of the day. So it really is your back that is hurting. But bust your ass is, of course, the saying. And we knew that. But we thought, if they want to change it, if somebody wants to record it and put bust your ass, then go ahead. Because a lot of times they'll, they'll want to change it. Because it used to actually, Lee Bryce, he, we called it drinking class without the G, like drinking. He asked if he could change it to drinking class. And we're like, well, sure, do it. Bust Your Back was on purpose. And when we were interviewed after it was number one, which also went number one on certain charts, they asked that question a lot. And we we're like, well, it's Bust Your Back. And by creating a controversy, it makes it more interesting because everybody's going to come up with Bust Your Ass. Hey, you bust Your Ass, man. Like, well, okay, whatever. Anybody can rhyme ass with class. To rhyme backs with class takes a real <laughs> songwriter, huh? Well, you know, there's a line you try to walk. You try to make it the best you can make it where you don't regret it. That song, I didn't think anybody really did because, first of all, it's like, you know, we're up in the rooster crows is the first line. And the, and the thing is, that's an old line. The rooster crows, you know, that could be a song from the 30s. But it's just real, you know. And Lee Bryce, who, who's a great writer, he listened to it, and apparently, you know, he looked at it like it's the real working man's song. And it really is a working man's song, you know, the drinking class, the working class. And there's been a lot of songs talking about Raise Your Glass. So it had a lot of things that, that probably were working against it, but he made something out of it. Then, then again, there's a real simple song. It does have a bridge, but the bridge is real cool. It's almost like a, a gospel church thing. We all know why we're here. Little fun, little music, little whiskey, little beer. It's almost like he's talking to the audience. Absolutely. It's got the organ. Ladies, break out your dancing shoes. I don't care what night it is. It's Friday. It's Saturday. It's Sunday. Come on, sing it with me. Got personality. It's the church of country music, or it's the, it's the gospel of country music being talked to you here. You don't hear about the thousands of songs I never got cut. You know, I mean, those are just lucky. That I got them through. You got to do a lot to get a little. But a little, it gets you a lot. You know, that's kind of my theory, too. It matters to me than all the other songs on that album, you know. So you obviously named your book after this song, It Matters to Me. And I have to say to you, the opening line of this song is one of the most remarkable 
lines and lyrics. When you wrote this, you must have been like, this is a song. Baby, tell me, where'd you ever learn to fight without saying a word? Like that just tells a story, man. You know, you're, you're like, give me more of that. Right. Tell, tell me where that came from. And well, I got to give Mark Sanders credit on that one. Uh, he didn't want to write with me that day. And we always wrote on Fridays. Mark's retired and now, but we always wrote on Fridays, but I'd have to bug him a lot of times to do it because he was successful before me. I always really admired his ability, how good he was because he used to be an English teacher he was real good with words and stuff, you know, and real smart guy. So he didn't want to write that day. I talked him into it and uh, it was a cold Friday in the winter. And he had this little office in Reba's building, had no windows. It was just about the size of the desk. And you'd go in there and just barely squeeze in there. Mark usually doesn't bring ideas with him. He's one of those kind of writers. And I had that yellow pad and I had some stuff written down. Finally got him on it. And about halfway down, these ideas I had, I had written It Matters to Me. And some of them were ideas, some of them were not. It's just a stir up. And I had it written down there, and I went by it and got to the end. He goes, well, go back to that. It matters to me. And that's when he said, you know, there's a certain thing about M's. People in their subconscious, it reminds you of mama. It's an endearing quality about M's in a title of a song. And I've thought about that ever since then. And whether it is or not, it's very interesting when you think all of the things that you don't realize, you know, that are affecting you, everything's affecting you. Everything, the sun going around, the, the wind, the, the days, the earth moving. I mean, things are affecting you. For most babies, that's their first word, mama, and that M sound, you know, is the first thing that many, many children utter. Yeah. So it's comforting. It's a comforting word that you don't even think about. Anyway. And, and it's a nice alliteration, you know, it matters to me. So we tackled that, and he had had an argument with his wife that morning. That's why he didn't want to write. That's the game they were playing. I do the same thing, or, or used to, or whatever, you know, you just, you just clam up. You don't talk. And I've gotten more compliments on that line than anything, because it's just people are like, it's simple, it's right, it's like, there's nothing wrong with that line. I mean, I can't find anything wrong with it. It's just following it up. So we did, and it's a real simple song. You know, and then the second verse is, you know, tell me how far it is, you know, the distance between a woman and a man. It's, it just doesn't say much. Real heartfelt. Yeah, maybe I still don't understand the distance between a woman and a man. So tell me how far it is. Yeah, it's so really not saying anything. Because I'm not sure I can. And I'm not sure I can was... I had I put that in there because Mark was going to put, I can't. Like, he was going to say, no, I can't do it that way. And I says, no, man, leave some hope. Leave some hope. I'm not sure I can. That leaves some hope. And I would do that a lot on writing songs. A lot of these other songs I, I would do, I'd just leave just a little bit of hope. You can't be all about despair, right? You got to have some hope in the song. You got to mix a little positivity in with the negativity. Like watching a movie, you know, people, you know, if you had an ending on the movie that's just awful, you nice to have a little bit of, leave you with a little bit of hope. It's just life. I don't know. I don't have the answers to stuff. I'm always searching, but some songs take a lot longer. Some don't, you know, that was, that was, didn't take long. Now, when I had um, Whatever You Say on Martina, which was a big song, the last verse on that song, I remember taking it in. I was still with Karen Conrad. 
I had a different last verse, and I and I played the song for her, and she goes, I don't think you've got it. And that last verse ended up being, uh, you say, yes, you need me. No, you wouldn't leave me, and that should be enough to make me stay. Even though I want to, I don't hear I love you in whatever you say. That wasn't the last verse original. I went back. The song was weeks old, and before we demoed it, and Mark and I, we changed that last verse because we didn't have the impact. She, as a woman, heard it, and I respected her opinion, so I went back and, and delved into it, and I'm glad I did. So you wrote in your book about this song, sometimes my job seems to be to know when to stay out of the way of greatness. It's important to guide the best ideas to the front. What do you mean by that on the writing of this song? Part of the collaboration thing, if somebody is, is on a roll or somebody, in your opinion, when you wipe away all of all the bullshit else going on, like if they're coming up with the best stuff, let them come up with it. Encourage it, you know? It is. It doesn't matter who comes up with them. It doesn't matter. The song is king. The thing is, you and your co-writer, you both have to win. If I win, they win. It doesn't matter. It's the end product. The song is king. The writers are servants. And that's what you have to do, you know? And so you have to... I'm thinking about stuff all the time. I'll be on the lawnmower thinking about stuff. And if it bothers me, it's not right. If it bothers me, it's not right. That's just all I know. That's a good rule. I haven't heard that before. If it just bothers you. Well, if a red flag pops up or you keep questioning it, then it could be better. And it's never going to be worse than it is. So you got that. So don't sweat it. You know, can you make it? Can you notch it up? I mean, what, what's the goal? My goal is to get somebody else to do it. I got to write something better than them. So this song has an octave jump from the verse to the chorus. And you obviously wrote that by design. And you talk in your book about how Great singers love that, but a lot of them can't do it, you know. So when Martina, I had three singles on her, and, and two of them, like, uh, how far it jumped up an octave. You do it right, it really is empowering to a singer because it just shows that, that they are really a singer and they it separates them from the other ones. And so certain songs, not everybody's going to do. Just if Martina didn't do that song, then nobody would do it, probably. You know, even even in other types of songs, like How About Them Cowgirls, if George Strait didn't do that song, there was no pitches. There was nobody else going to do it. There's nobody, maybe Ronnie Dunn. So a lot of times publishers, they want you to write a song that they can play and that 20 people can cut. Well, the people that are recording songs don't want songs that 20 other people can do. They want songs that are just for them. So there's that line you got to walk. And you don't know what they've cut already. It's sort of like being in the front of a ship. They're the ship. You don't know if they've cut six songs. They don't tell you. You don't know if the six songs, what groove they're in, what subject matter they are, and what, what they have open left. And you just have to take a guess. It's trying to like look through a locked window that's curtains drawn. It's not easy. Bus fare. 
This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where the cream is gonna rise. This is what you really didn't know. This is where the truth don't lie. You'll find out who your friends are. Somebody's gonna drop everything. Run out and crank up their car. Hit the gas, get there fast, and stop to think what's in it for me. Or it's way too far. They just show on up with a big old heart. You find out who your friends are. So it's a tough business that you're in, and one of the songs that you wrote that went to number one is Find Out Who Your Friends Are. What's this song about? That's just what it's about right there. And you read the story on that, it's pretty scary, because that song got number one because the head of a record label decided to put out a cease and desist order on it. And that's not nice, you know. That's when we had, you know, Kenny Chesney and Tim McGraw, you know, did a version with Tracy Lawrence. And so uh, that song struggled to get up the charts until those two guys were on it. There's another version with just Tracy. Then it it got to number four. The head of the record label of one of those guys decided that he didn't give the guy, he didn't give his guy permission. So he has his lawyer put a cease and desist order out to the programmers to quit playing the song because he didn't give his artist permission to play on it, which upset his artist because his artist is a big artist. You know, he's one of those guys. The radio station, I read this, they got back the next day and they're like, well, we thought we did something wrong because, you know, the cease and desist order, that's that's mean, you know. We thought we did something wrong, but we looked up the law and it says when these albums come out, we can play anything off of it. The album had already come out. If the album hadn't come out yet, that'd be one thing, but it had come out. So our fans request we play this song. So we are not only going to make it a number one record, we're going to make it vocal event of the year. The next week on Monday, it was a number one record, and it was a vocal event of the year at the ACMs come up two months after that. That's the fight that radio has with labels. You know, who's got the power? You know, they looked it up and uh, that was it. They wouldn't have got to number one otherwise, probably. And it's a big song, and I've gotten a lot of. I had I had a guy get a hold of me yesterday because he broke his leg, and his friends came over, and they helped him put in a uh, a driveway thing where he can get his wheelchair down his driveway for free. And he goes, "Man, it reminds me of your song, man." I have people all the time tell me about find out who your friends are, which is another simple song that's written for everybody. You know, and it doesn't go into detail that people don't recognize, like. Run your car off the side of the road, you know, get stuck in a ditch way out in the middle of nowhere. You know, people get that, you know. I, I love the stuff of, you know, this ain't where the road comes to an end. This ain't where the bandwagon stops. This is just one of those times a lot of folks jump off. It's just true. Tracy Lawrence had had a hit for 10 years before that song came out. And he got a number one on that. And uh, he cried when he got a number one because he thought he was out of the picture because he had, he'd been out of the limelight for at least 10 years, you know. And Trisha was out of the limelight on Georgia Rain for, she hadn't had a song out in six years, and she got a big song on Georgia Rain. And uh... Barefoot in the bed of your truck, 
on a blanket looking up Half a moon peeking down at us From underneath the clouds Teenage kids sneaking out again Heard the thunder rolling in We were falling the moment when It all came pouring down The Georgia rain on the Jasper County clay Couldn't wash Georgia Rain, let's talk about Georgia Rain for a second, because you originally wrote it as Augusta Rain, and I've seen the Masters, so I know what golf tournament, so I know what Augusta looks like. And interestingly, on this show, I've analyzed Roger Murrow's Seattle Rain, I've analyzed Kai Fleming's Smoky Mountain Rain, and now we get a chance to talk about Georgia Rain, or Augusta Rain, and can you tell me what is the difference of that rain from any other kind of rain? Well, just the location. It's in Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a it's just a, a way to hook the song. I wrote that with Karen Rochelle, and and I used to love writing with Karen, knowing that we weren't going to get a song about only about every four times we got together. Women are, you know, I kind of studied that a little bit about women and. Those songs are real personal to them. I'm liable to write about anything, but I just know that Karen's going to write something that actually affects her. Now she's actually a background singer in Garth and Trisha's band, and she opens a show for them because of George Rain. But Karen that day, it was a winter day, and and we started talking about her mother, and her mother hadn't been feeling good, and she was in Augusta. And I think she's from, uh, she might have been from Georgia, although she lived in Carolinas. And Karen was always worried about her mom, so... We ended up doing Augusta Rain, but then it sounds like Augusta Wind, you know, like Augusta Rain, Augusta Wind. But anyway, we wrote that and uh, we hooked it around the rain to make it, uh, I don't know, it just that's just the way it, the way it turned out. When we were doing it, I was like, Karen, who's going to who's gonna cut this song? I mean, Trisha, she wasn't even recording anymore, you know. She's from Georgia, but nobody else was. And I go, who's going to record a song about weather? about Georgia. There's nobody there to do it. She goes, I don't know, and I don't care. I think it's beautiful. We're going to demo it. I go, yes, ma'am. And that's what we did. And it sat on the shelf <laughs> for two years. And then Garth Fundus heard it. Trisha did it. And uh, they changed, you know, the, the first line instead of being first line of the chorus, you know, Augusta Ray on the red Georgia clay. This, you know, the Georgia Ray on the Jasper County clay. You know, whatever. So they just changed that to make it personal because that's where she's from, Jasper County. Then the, they did it on the CMAs the first time, and uh, Maya Angelo and uh, Dennis Hopper introduced her, and man, it got a standing ovation because it was just, it was just real. I got great reviews on it. 
there's no bridge in that song. It's just verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. That's it. But it tells a great story. And the, it's like the second verse using like uh, cotton fields remember when? Flash of light and drove us in. Well, I kind of thought about Dina Carter and Matresa Berg doing uh, strawberry wine, you know. The fields have grown over now, years since they've seen a plow. There's nothing time hasn't touched. So, like, what's the line in there about the moon saw, the moon saw, like in, in Strawberry Wine? The moon was, I don't know what it is, but the moon was a witness. So, I mean, the cotton, the entity, like, cotton feels like they remember now. So, I use them as a person. And so, in your subconscious, a lot of my subconscious has to do with that because I'm always thinking about the history and those other songs like that and what worked and what I liked. songs that is based on one of the sweetest things I read in your book and from your personal life, which not many of your songs seem to be inspired from your personal life is just fishing. You know, your daughter had said this line or you had said to your daughter, I love you. Her name is Grayson, right? Yeah. And you said, I love you, Gray. And she said, I know. And I thought, oh my God, that is like, that makes a dad feels so great. Yeah. I can remember I was in my car about a mile from here, taking her to school or something. And, and at first I thought, well, yeah, you're taking a lot for granted, you know, but it's, it's just means that they're confident, you know, it's like, anyway, I, it just stuck with me. And then uh, when we were writing it, I, I brought it up and it ended up being in the song. Yeah. There's something about it. I know. I mean, it's just, that's a kid whose parents aren't afraid to say you love them, you know, and you do it. And I do it all the time. I still do, you know, and it's like, so the kid just, it's in their subconscious, you know, they don't have to go fishing for it. And the whole thing's a memory. And, and when I was writing it too, I was thinking, okay, at first it wasn't about fishing. It was about playing catch with a boy and a dad. And then we'd go, well, we went to fishing. And I just think, man, 
my my two girls, they love fishing. You know, maybe it's a girl, maybe it's a daughter and a dad. We're like, well, let's see. Garth has three daughters. Trace has five or three or something. Tim McGraw's got two or three. So we started thinking these guys only have daughters. And there's like, so there's three pitches, four pitches. So we're thinking about that while we're writing it, you know. We had it, and I was like, man, this is this is really good because it's not saying about fishing. You know, it's about a memory. They put it on hold for Trace eventually, and it didn't make the album. That Trace, he had gone from uh, whatever he was on, Capital, and he went over to Universal South. We didn't make the album that they had on hold, the song, the song on hold for. And I was actually picking Grayson up or, or one of my girls up from school. Mark Wright, who produced it, or was running the label, he goes, just fishing is not going to be on this Trace album. And I was like, oh, man. And he'd already recorded it. He said, it's going to be on the next one. And I was just going, jeez, the next one? I got to live through four singles, two years. You're going to, you know, you're going to lose interest in it by then. You know, I'm thinking to myself, because, you know, they never hold on to them. You know, and there'll be a new producer, and then it won't be their baby, and then they'll be on to something else. So what am I going to do, though? You know, and I was like, okay. Thanks. By God, they did. They did it on the next record and it became, a, I don't know if it's the first single. I think so. Got nominated for a Grammy and I got beat out by Taylor Swift, of course, because she was hot. She had a better song, but she won. Well, I like this song because it's a father-daughter love song. And there aren't a lot of those kind of father-daughter songs. You know, that's a real unique thing. Every father who has a daughter feels like that special relationship. And, you know, not every daughter likes to go fishing either. You know, some daughters don't like going near fish and hooks and worms and things like that. Well, in the video, the little girl just touches a fish one time. <laughs> like she doesn't even, he, he baits the hook and everything. But again, it's back to being real, real simple in the simplest terms, you know, watching her holding that pink rod and reel, you know, I'm lost. I'm lost in her holding that pink rod and reel, you know, doing almost everything but sitting still. Those lines, man, are just, you know, you got to make them universal and simple, but it's nice pictures, you know. It's nice to have nouns and verbs. And did you have pictures of your daughter, Grace, in, in this? Do I have some? No. When you're writing it, did you have pictures of her in your head? Was that inspiring you? or My other daughter, Savannah, who's just a little bit older, yeah. Oh, yeah, we went to Center Hill Lake one time. They're on the dock, and they're just having a ball when they catch a fish. Of course, you got to let them put the fish back. They don't want to kill it. You go fishing somewhere where you don't have to wait, where the fish will hit quick. Otherwise, if you got to wait, then the kid's going to get disinterested. But as long as it's hitting, man, and there's a place not too far from here, you just put your pole in and put a cicada or something on it, man. You'll get something hitting it real quick. So they used to like that. Mm-hmm. Ought to stay kids as long as they can Turn off the screen, go climb a tree Get dirt on their hands I believe we gotta forgive and make amends Cause nobody gets a second chance To make new old friends I believe in working hard for what Don't add up to a hell of a lot I 
Let's finish this episode by talking about Most People Are Good by Luke Bryan. That's sort of been uh, your latest chart-topping song. You know, in this day and age when it doesn't feel like everybody's good to each other always, it's a real inspiring message. I've had a songwriter friend of mine, he goes, most people aren't good. That's not right. I go, well, maybe 51%. 50.1. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but, you know... Even though, like politics or whatever thing, everything's real heated up right now. But that was, you know, just two years ago. And it was heated up then, but it was before everybody else got on the bandwagon. The thing was, Luke Bryan never crossed our mind when we wrote this song. That never, ever crossed my mind that a bro country, Luke Bryan would do this song. We just got to the point after so long, I write with Josh and David a a lot. We've been writing together for 20 years. You know, we catch up on the families. And, you know, we don't do it all the time. I'm, I'm going to see them again here this month. But we just find something that we like, you know, and simple. Again, I'm back to simple, but Josh came in with that title and we were kicking that around. And then we had more ideas than we could get in the song, you know, of like all the things we said in there. We had a lot more of them than that. And, uh, but the ones that were, Sticking was like, you know, uh, most mamas ought to qualify for sainthood. And that came about because we needed something to rhyme with. Most people are good. And that rhymed with it. But it's like, man, we all love that. And so it's like, jing, that line's going to stay. One of my favorite lines, because nobody gets a second chance to make new old friends. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. And then the, the line at the end of the chorus, you love who you love. Ain't nothing you should ever be ashamed of is interpreted in a lot of ways. Like Luke Bryan thought it just meant interracial, but we're talking about gays, lesbians. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, you just love who you love and nothing you should ever be ashamed of. You can't help who you love. And it's really a good universal thing to say. And it doesn't eliminate anybody. And when we're like, you know, also, you know, streets of gold, even if they were paved in dirt, I still want to go. Well, that doesn't eliminate any certain religion, even though Streets of Gold sounds kind of Christian. It doesn't eliminate Catholics. It doesn't eliminate anybody who believes in a higher being. You know what I'm saying? It's like, that's what we're trying to do is not eliminate any listener, you know, because everybody has a human thing of, I mean, if you're an atheist, well, then that's a different song. And I could write an atheist song, but why be an atheist? I mean, what if you're wrong? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway... If you ask that question, that would make you an agnostic. Yeah. Ed, you know, if you ask what, what if you're wrong, you, you, you're no longer, once you start asking that question, then you're not, no longer a qualified atheist. I think. Yeah. And you know that um, that song didn't get nominated for anything on the CMA and ACMs 
because for several reasons. One, the year before when um, Girl Crush came out, I got a girl. A lot of people thought that was about two lesbians, and it's not. It's just about a woman that is jealous of the other woman about the man. But also, being as how I'm an independent publisher, these publishing companies, they do uh, mass voting. In other words, when you work at a big publishing company, you don't know it, but you're automatically a member of the ACM and CMAs. They make you one in the company. So say there's 60 people that work in the company, that's 60 votes. So when it comes time for the nominations or whatever, so here's a guy running this label. He goes and calls the other label and goes, okay, look, it. we want him to be the duet of the year. We'll vote for your guy to be the album of the year if you vote for us. So there's See, they have a mass, I mean, massive amount of votes. I have one vote, and I don't even get the vote. So we didn't get nominated for anything. And people were like, how come that song didn't get nominated for anything? Well, that's why, because it was an independent deal. Now, Luke's label could vote for it, but, you know, it's just more people are going to vote for songs that they're all label-oriented, you know, and people don't know that stuff. You know, it's called block voting, the block vote. And that's what they do. They don't even talk to each other most of the time. But that's some inside information I probably shouldn't have told you. But <laughs> Well, I have to thank you, Ed Hill. This has truly, truly been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on Backstory Song. Is there anyone you want to thank? I don't thank everybody out there, man. I hope I didn't make nobody mad. <laughs> I don't know how you could. You're too nice a guy. Oh, man. I can't wait till we get beyond this COVID and I get to get out there and meet you. Yeah, yeah. Well... Maybe we'll have to write about it. I don't know. But everybody else has written about that. I don't like writing songs that are limited. Like you write a song about being six feet apart. Next thing you know, it's over. You know, I want something that's timeless. Well, your songs are timeless and thank you for giving them to us. I also got to thank DJ Wyatt Schmidt. You can listen to his music out there on Twitch. He's got quite a growing following and please follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're posting regularly all these uh, daily song shout outs and the weekly songwriter spotlight. I have to thank my top patron, Jim the Fiend Newman. Thank you, Jim Newman, for being a supporter and uh, please, uh, we encourage everybody to support Backstory songs so we can keep doing this for you please share the songwriter playlist the songbooks that we're creating because that will help ed hill get paid and buy ed's book it matters to me buy it directly from him and he will autograph a copy and send it to you so thank you very much ed hill for being on our show all right doug talk to you later Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.